Hi and welcome, this is Ryan Hendrickson. I'm the Dean of the Graduate School at Eastern Illinois University. And welcome to EIU Innovate. This is a podcast devoted to innovative things happening at EIU. We like to focus especially on research advancements and cool and fun, innovative scholarship that's taking place on campus. And we also really focus in on graduate education. Um, before I introduce our guest today, this, which is the first of the 2018-2019 academic year, I want to say a couple words about graduate school at EIU. We are off to such a great start this year. Um, we have nearly 1,500 students, graduate students at EIU. This is the highest number of graduate students that we've had since 2010. So I'm very, very excited, and that tells us that we have graduate programs that are attractive, that are excelling, and graduate program leaders who are out there who are doing just a wonderful job at sharing the good things that we do at EIU. Um, so in any event, I wanted to start off with that and just uh, share how the good things that are happening. Uh, today, my guest is Dr. Margaret or Meg Flores. She is an associate professor of psychology and she also serves as the graduate coordinator in the School of Psychology graduate program. She is innovative, and we are gonna talk about some really fun stuff today, um, fun and interesting stuff. Um, her, she's published 20 or so different articles in her arguably quite early stage of her academic life. She's been at EIU since 2010 and uh, she's got research devoted to uh, what I guess we'll call praise research, uh, which is how she's gonna argue we should interact with students and even maybe teachers in the classroom. She's also done some interesting co-authored research on bullying, which is a very hot topic in schools, um, caffeine, which I can't wait to talk about, dreams, and finally, We'll, we'll work in caterpillars at some point. So this is going to be a really interesting, fun podcast. So welcome, and um, we are very happy to have here with us um, Dr. Meg Flores. Meg, welcome to EIU Innovate. Thank you. Thank you for It's really me. a pleasure to have you here. Your research is really interesting, and you've published so much already, and so much of it has relevance to our schools in managing school children, and I know also that you're working with a lot of graduate students and some undergraduates too, mm -hmm. which is what we do so well at EIU. So you have so many titles of your research that have praise in it. So let's start with that, Meg. Okay. What is going on? What What do we need to praise? Why should we praise? Or what What are your What's your research talk about? Yeah. Um, so let me kind of back up just a little bit and tell you how I was very much inspired through undergrad research myself. As an undergrad, I had the opportunity to join a clinical research team that worked with parent-child interaction therapy in my undergrad, and I got to sit in on this, this great uh, evidence-based uh, training program for parents who essentially have children ages two to seven who are not following directions, who have behavior problems. And I knew right away that I was really interested in this topic as an undergrad. And I got to sit in on their supervision, their group supervision. And then I was essentially learning all of the different uh, steps to parent-child interaction training and 
also getting to practice that with uh, children in my undergrad experience. And so I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. I knew that I wanted to work with children. And so school psychology was a really good fit. And I thought that you have this evidence-based program. There's lots of research on it. Children you know, become more compliant. They have an improved relationship with their parents because they're following directions and those types of things. These are children that don't necessarily start following directions just because they go into school, that these are problems that um, children oftentimes have in school as well. And so for my dissertation, I looked at applying that parent-child interaction uh, therapy to a teaching training model with teachers. And so that, you know, we just easily kind of called it. I think there was like uh, one or two other research uh, papers out that had done something similar and so I wanted to just expand on that for my dissertation. So you were looking at how parents interact with children and then how that would translate into classroom behavior? Was that part of what your research was about? Um, Not necessarily translating into classroom behavior but essentially parents were taught specific skills to then use with their children. So one of the things that we know with young children is sitting them kind of down in a 50-minute therapy session and talking about, like, tomorrow, we really want you to follow directions, is not likely to be very effective. Yeah. Um, but one of the things N- that None we, of us like that. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that we know is effective is getting the adults around that child to change some of the strategies that they're doing, and then we can oftentimes see improvements in that child's behavior. So some of the key examples of things that parents would be taught would be uh, using behavior-specific praise, which essentially means that um, you identify what it is that the child's doing exactly and show some sort of approval. So, Ryan, you're doing such a nice job sitting in that chair today and Mm -hmm. listening to me and using your eyes. Um, I feel better already. (laughs) And so we would uh, teach those things to parents, and we would train them up and have certain criteria. And then we also like show parents how to give different forms of attention. So it's not just praise, but just describing what your child is doing when they're doing things that are appropriate. So those specific skills and that specific program, I looked at adapting that to the school setting and working with preschool teachers and teaching those those same skills. Another really unique part of parent-child interaction training is that there is a uh, direct coaching component, and when I say direct coaching, the parent is in the child in the room with their child, and the coach is on the other side of the room, or they're not. It could be the other side of the room, but ideally, if you're in a clinic setting, you're behind a one-way mirror, and then the parent has a hearing device, and the coach is verbatim telling that parent the praises to use and coaching them up to a certain rate of using those praises. And once we get all of that positive stuff in place, then we teach parents on giving good directions, and we teach parents on following through with um, things like timeout, because timeout is an evidence-based strategy that's very effective as well. So knowing that this was done kind of in that clinic setting, and knowing that um, we see a lot of these similar behaviors, especially with our preschool age children. I worked with three different preschools and three different preschool teachers to teach them those skills and work directly with them to coach up those skills. And then we went into the classroom and we measured changes in those target children that were 
you know, having a lot of difficulties in the preschool classroom. All right, so this is dissertation research? So this was dissertation research. And like I said, one of the big components with PCIT is praise. And so that was kind of the offshoot into my current uh, research program, which I would kind of conceptualize in three areas. One is kind of looking at what teachers naturally do. So we know that uh, behavior-specific praise is good. And so one of the questions that I had was, I wanted to go out and without um, explicitly telling teachers that that's what I was looking for, just look to see how often they used some of these skills. Um, so that's one area of research. The other area of research that I am interested in is developing and fine-tuning these easy-to-use strategies. So praise is a cost-effective, you know, I don't need to put a lot of money into that. I can bring it anywhere, you know, I don't have to um, have a lot of materials to be able to use it. And it's fairly straightforward. One of the caveats, I think, with praise and then also timeout is everybody thinks that they know how to do it and it tends to be a little bit more complicated than that some other things that you need to think about and so I'm interested in again those strategies that are easy and cost-effective that we can put into uh, teachers pockets so that they can be less stressed in the classroom and then the last area of research is again the training so how do we train specifically teachers to use some of these strategies. Okay, so let's walk through, say, a first grade classroom. And let's say we have this little boy, he just can't sit still, okay? He can't sit still and maybe causes a little ruckus at times in the classroom. What would be your advice to the teacher on managing this? You know, I've given kind of a pretty vague mm -hmm. summary here of what might be happening, but how do we manage this particular little boy and encourage him to maybe not cause the ruckus in the classroom. So I think um, one of the great things about uh, training to be a school psychologist is we're heavy in assessment. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the first thing that we have to do is kind of assess the classroom environment. We need to kind of assess the interactions with that child. And then if we're specifically targeting one child, um, we might want to look at what is maintaining like some of that disruptive behavior that's occurring so that we can find an intervention that's going to match and be effective for that child. And so we have different things that maintain kind of behaviors and we would want to assess kind of that first. But one of the big things that's happening kind of in school psychology is looking at things from a systems-wide perspective and being very preventative. And so one of the things that I'm interested in is potentially down the road trying to give um, suggestions that are predictive of overall classroom behavior that is positive. So for instance, when we look at the very specific targeted research and we look to see at what rate teachers are praising and what is the um, at what point student behavior for that targeted child improves the research kind of suggests that around three to five behavior specific praises per 10 minutes is kind of where you want to be but that's a pretty intensive intervention that sounds like a lot of praising yeah and so one of the things that we don't know is so f to maintain kind of that entire classroom what is the rate of praise because teachers can praise 
you know, to the entire classroom, classroom you, everybody that I see is getting their books out on time and is moving towards their next subject. That is great. So we would kind of call that praise to the entire class versus, you know, John, you got your books out right away and you are sitting down right away. And so there's all these different facets of praise that we haven't um, really studied that in depth. We've done a lot of focus on verbally praising. We've done a lot of focus on individually praising children because a lot of our work becomes that intensive, you know, John is causing a problem in the classroom and we need to do something. But if we put a lot of our efforts into the preventative and, and we look to support teachers, you know, as and maintaining kind of the health of their classroom as a whole, ideally, you know, we would have less children. You know, I think we still will have some of those children, but the idea is if we put a lot of that preventative up front and we have teachers that have some of these good strategies up front, we're doing less of that intensive work with one-on-one children. And I think one of the things that's clear from the literature as well is teachers report that they're not receiving enough training in this behavior management. And so we want to be able to support them in these easy-to-use strategies that we know that are effective. Well, this is such a hot topic, it seems to me, because we have we hear so many stories of schools and school districts, even in the region, facing some discipline problems mm-hmm. right now. And they, you know, the reports are that the teachers just can't control the students in some cases. I mean, maybe it's a media blow up a little bit on the news, but Nonetheless, we do have some at least anecdotal examples of this happening. So when you hear that, what do you think? And what do you think about how your research might speak to that particular problem? So I think what one of the things that you're kind of talking about is the system-wide, everybody being on board, everybody working towards the same goals, everybody kind of understanding the system that is in place. So I think that that's very important. I think you have to have not only working to develop those positive relationships between teachers and students, but I think you need to be working to develop positive relationships between staff members. And I think, you know, when you look at um, like industrial organization research and you know staff, like we don't oftentimes talk about praising our colleagues. We might use a different word, but you know, I, I, one of the things that I kind of bring up when I'm giving presentations is when you think about that boss that you had that was really positive, and you think about that boss that you had that you really, it was unpleasant working for, oftentimes it wasn't that that person that was unpleasant working for gave you too much praise or really took you aside and said, I really like how timely you were. I liked how on top of things, I didn't have to think about this. You were really supporting me. You know, without you, I would you're my right hand person. Yeah. Those are great things to hear. And so I think we need to have those between staff. I think we need to have those between teachers and students. And I think if we focus on what we want to grow and what we want to reinforce, that's really the key. And I, I'm not saying that giving feedback that's unpleasant doesn't happen. And I think that is important, but we need to have more of the positives and more of the what are we focused on growing and less on the what do I want to get rid of. And I think the knee-jerk reaction, like again, when parents are having an issue or, or your example with the child in the classroom, like he's inattentive, he's out of his seat, oftentimes the direction is how do I squash that? Uh-huh. 
as opposed to what is the behavior that's incompatible with the yelling out or being disruptive and how do I grow that incompatible behavior? So how do I grow more sitting still in your seat? How do I grow more raising your hand? What are the things that I can do to foster and increase those things? And as a function of doing that, we should see a decrease in the other stuff. This might be a hard question to answer, but so, you know, one wonders where that line is, where you've got the student who just might not be paying attention and causing trouble, and at what point do we really praise them and say, talk about the good things, where at, at some point we say, you know what, you just need to sit out and quit goofing around and do the work. How do we, I know that's a little hard. Yeah, but. I, and I think some of the research suggests that those kids that are at risk get the least amount of praise, just naturally. When we go into the classrooms, if we look at kids with learning problems, we look at kids with behavior problems, and we look at kids with learning and behavior problems, the kids with behavior problems are the ones that get less of what we're talking so about. So they generally need a little bit more praise. If, if we want to change Build them up. those behaviors, and, and one of the things that happens potentially, like speaking in generalities, is those kids may be getting things that maintain that disruptive behavior, but what we are seeing it, we're saying, you know, we're disciplining and we're yelling at that child or we're, you know, criticizing that child. And that may be maintaining the inappropriate behavior that we want to see less of. And so understanding that and doing those good assessments and matching, you know, what is maintaining the certain behavior, what is the function of that behavior is an important part because what looks like unpleasantness to somebody may not be functioning that way mm -hmm. and until we do that assessment or have a better understanding of what makes behavior work you know if we keep doing the same thing we're going to likely you know yeah. get the same result okay so you've got six or seven articles somewhere in that range about praise research that have been published and i know you're continuing to work in this area so where are you going next with this area of research so we've kind of looked at, again, just naturally what are teachers doing. There's been some recommendations out there in terms of we should be delivering five like behavior-specific praises to every one criticism or redirection or you're not quite doing that right. So again, much more of an emphasis on the positive. And our research so far has really been um, geographically restricted to central Illinois. Okay. And so what I would like to do and what I would like to push for is to see if some of the natural things that teachers are doing in this area is consistent with other regions. And one way that we've trialed this is we've sent video to teachers to video record themselves. And then this allow this is a great opportunity for undergrad and graduate students who then can um, clean the video and code the video on campus. Oh, that's always helpful. I know so. even sometimes teachers do that for themselves just to see how they're teaching and they're struck by what they see yeah. and say, I can easily address that right. problem or behavior of myself that I'm mm -hmm. not doing well. And so then that would kind of be the next step too, is looking at using technology it, at a distance. There's more research kind of in this area, especially for when looking at um, mental health services in rural areas, but that research is also 
carrying over to schools in rural areas and reaching out to teachers to provide those consultation services that are not receiving those because maybe they don't have a school psychologist because again there's just a smaller population and we need more school psychologists we need more mental health individuals working in the schools so through kind of technology we can use like web cameras and actually do um, direct observations but then also provide that feedback and that training to teachers like in real time in that classroom so yeah two three years down the road i would love for that to be something that we we could provide both the kind of what are the natural rates and then also training and coaching up to improve some of the issues that teachers are having in their classroom okay so very few faculty members have the word caterpillar on their <laughs> vita, but you do at least twice. The caterpillar game. So Meg, what's going on with the caterpillar game in short? Okay. Mm. I enjoy the caterpillar game. Um, I, when I was thinking about this study, I was thinking about a common classroom-wide intervention or um, management system that teachers commonly use, and it comes in various forms. Sometimes it's pulling a card. Sometimes there's a green, yellow, red card. Sometimes there's other colors. Sometimes there's five colors. Sometimes there's a clip. But the common theme in all of those systems is typically children start at the top or on green or in the good zone or in the teacher's good graces. And when you do something that's goofy or screwy, then the teacher um, lets you know and moves down your clip. And sometimes the teacher moves your clip and sometimes you have to walk to the front of the classroom and pull a card or um, move a clip yourself. And so with the Caterpillar game, I thought, well, we know that identifying the behavior that we don't wanna see is likely to increase the behavior that we don't wanna see. And so what can we put in place to help teachers focus on the things that we want to see more of. And so the Caterpillar um, game is a seven-segment Caterpillar with a butterfly token that starts at the bottom. And as a classroom, the teacher is identifying uh, children that are doing the things that are classroom expectations. And it may be other proactive behaviors that go above and beyond classroom expectations. But, you know, we're not picky. We just want to see behavior we want to grow more of. And when the teacher notices that, they use that behavior-specific praise either to the entire classroom or an individual child and moves that token up one segment. You move up the caterpillar? You move up the caterpillar. And so when you're at the top of the caterpillar, it's meant to kind of just be the duration of a classroom lesson. So if you're doing a 20-minute lesson in first grade, you know, the idea is that you're at the top of that caterpillar by the end of that lesson. And in fact, the other part that you can kind of assess whether or not you're doing it correctly is that the teacher should be using three behavior-specific praises in 10 minutes. Jeez, okay. And so, again, like there's more than three tokens that you would be moving up by, but at the end of your lesson um, and meeting the kind of that rate, the token gets to the top and then there is a deck of cards that the teacher um, one of the best things that I saw when I was observing uh, one of our studies after the fact to kind of see if the teacher continued to use it was then she identified a child that was sitting and doing what he was supposed to be doing to come up and pick the deck of cards and so he picked the card 
and um, they're meant to be quick, easy little things in the classroom that they can do, like pretend to be your favorite animal or playing one game of I Spy. In this particular situation, it was this child got to be the line leader and everybody followed him snaking through the classroom back to their desks. And okay. that was it. And everybody was excited. And then the uh, butterfly goes to the bottom of the caterpillar and we start over again. Okay. So no, re no red card green card, yellow card. So no red card, green card, <laughs> yellow card, but you bring up a good point because I think sometimes when um, you're so focused on that, you know, teachers are like, well, what do I do if somebody screws up and, you know, Yeah, do you go something. back down the caterpillar So then? you can, mm -hmm. but we try to focus more so on and the po positives. Oh, okay. Yes. So if there has been a classroom rule that has been broken, it is acceptable to go backwards, but yeah. you also need to be meeting that three behavior-specific praises in 10 minutes. And if that's not happening, then the integrity in which the caterpillar is being implemented is not okay. happening. So we have kind of this integrity check to make sure that it's being, being used as intended. My wife and I have three kids, <laughs> and I'm fairly certain one of them got it. They all were by whatever standard, they were pretty well behaved in elementary school. But I think one of them at some point got a yellow card or maybe even a red card. They came home and they were horrified. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was a crisis. But um, I know that this is a commonly used strategy in classrooms still about the, the cards. Pulling and, the cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, maybe the caterpillar will catch on and encourage more positive um, behavior and positive activities from the teacher. So let me switch gears, though, because you have so many other research areas that are interesting. You've done one article on bullying, mm -hmm. and I know that's not a major uh, direction of all your research, but bullying's a hot topic, too. So do you have, what, do, what do you have to contribute to that? Yeah, so that was a kind of a review of the literature and future directions of things that we should be thinking about with bullying. And one of the areas that I really enjoy is working with preschool children, and um, in the literature... They um, talk about that bullying really isn't present in preschool because it's not meeting kind of our accepted definition of um, intentionality and like repetitiveness. And so the idea with this literature review is um, that might be so, but if we're going to, again, focus on prevention, we need to possibly be looking at some of the skills and pro-social skills that children have early on and look at how we can foster those and develop those in a positive way. And a lot of the you know, bullying research and understanding bullying roles is for the intention of putting preventative practices in place. And so that was really what this article was about and really pushing for um, more longitudinal research, looking and following children from preschool and watching also, just other predictors, like we know that children that have more difficulty with language possibly might put them at risk for developing behavior problems, not necessarily bullying, but we, those are other research questions to explore. And, you know, children that have, that are very skilled with language sometimes, you know, might be more able to bully with language and being more relational and, and those types of things. And so we we're just reviewing kind of the literature and pointing to new directions and, and really putting an emphasis on not negating preschoolers because we want to really be providing a lot of support and prevention early on because, you know, that's cost effective and we can make a larger impact if we're shaping up like children early. Okay. 
Another fascinating title here is uh, Caffeine Consumption in Young Children. So too much Pepsi, too much Mountain <laughs> Dew, uh, yeah, hopefully so not Red Bull or anything, but this, yeah, what's going on here? This was a study that was um, done, data collection was done at the um, University of Nebraska Medical Center when I was working there, and we had surveyed in the pediatrics um, outpatient department parents, both Spanish-speaking and English-speaking, on their children's consumption of caffeine. And so this was back in 2011. I think one of the things that we were thinking about at the time is we were definitely seeing more like monster drinks and, you know, this emphasis and those are marketed to like tweens and, you know, not quite teenagers, definitely teenagers too. And so on average, I think of our sample, like 75% um, were endorsing like caffeine on a daily basis. I think the younger group, which was ages five to seven, was like 50 so um, milligrams, whereas the older group, which was eight to 12, was like 100. And I looked up just for reference (laughs) yesterday too, just in a can of Coke, 12 ounces, it's about 30. And so- Oh my gosh, that's a lot of caffeine. You know, more than a 12 ounce or on average, a little more yeah. than four ages five to seven. So yeah, it would be interesting to kind of look and redo that. Cause like I said, that was, that's a lot of caffeine that children are drinking. So, huh. Okay. <laughs> and, and yeah, just like the, I think one of the, the takeaway points too is when you're doing your assessment of <laughs> children behavior problems in the classroom or, you know, coming in and talking to the pediatrician and screening for what's, what's your daily intake of caffeine and and looking to see how that at least considering that as part of not being able to sit still or now this may not be relevant at all but it seems like a good segue to this other title that's interesting here that you've published uh, in this journal dreaming nightmare prevalence distress and anxiety among young children sounds like a difficult topic or not difficult a challenging area so what did you find here Yeah, so we really wanted to kind of do this with young children because nightmares had not been studied as much, especially in this five to six-year-old kindergarten range. And so we had parents report their children's nightmare prevalence, and we had children report their own with the assistance of their parent. We adapted the kind of survey to be more child-friendly, so parents assisted with reading, but we also had some visual icons in terms of, like, number of dots, so one dot meaning, you know, not very often, and five dots meaning a lot, so that children um, would be more accurate kind of in their their reporting, or at least that was the, the hope. And I guess findings were that the frequency of nightmares there was a positive correlation between parents reporting and their child's reporting but uh, children reported the actual distress of their nightmares at a higher higher level than than parents did so one of the things we kind of walked away with this age group oftentimes children need assistance kind of calming down and going back to bed Mm -hmm. and so that might have been one explanation for why the frequency would have been more in line, but in terms of the distress, um, parents, you know, possibly not being as in tune or, or children reporting that, that that event was much more stressful, you know, than, than that parent realized. Okay. 
And then there, I guess overall with the anxiety, there was um, a positive relation between uh, parents completing a measure on their child's anxiety and then um, children's reported frequency. So you've published, as I say, more than 20 articles, and I know you're a mom, and I know you got a busy teaching life, so my question is, when do you write? And what's most, I mean, what's most effective for you to get all this work done? <laughs> so I am most effective writing towards the end of the week, writing at home, <laughs> writing when I have breaks. I would, I would say our fall break is one that I'm like, oh, I'm going to get writing done and, and probably don't. More so winter break over the summer. I, I think, too, always having different things in different stages kind of helps me move forward. So if I'm constantly um, submitting things and then I'm, you know, getting things back from reviewers or journals that essentially say, you're not quite there, you need to, you know, fix this, this, and this. I've, one of the, I think, most helpful things is just keep moving forward and keep putting it out yeah. there. And, and then I'm constantly, you know, I might not be writing from scratch, I might be making revisions, but as long as I'm always kind of doing those things that seems to be very helpful. Okay, so I've heard other scholars and faculty members talk about, you know, breaks. You've got to use those winter breaks. You've got to use the summer break. But I've never heard anybody say the end of the week. So is there something like on Thursday, Friday, do you say to yourself, okay, i got to go. i got to get this done now. I think I just have um, more top-heavy weeks. So it's more like prepping, you know, getting through classes, uh, teaching classes. We have the new um, academic intervention clinics and doing all that supervision. And then, yeah, that Friday is kind of catch-up time. I do try to get all of, you know, my grading and that stuff done. And I do that strategically because I want to get to the writing. So I enjoy doing the writing. Okay. And so I, I really try to force myself to do the other You get up first. right away in the morning? I mean, you no. get your kids going, doing <laughs> no. their stuff? or No. Um, <laughs> I would be more of a night writer. I, I would night, yeah, write into the evenings. I'm not a morning okay. person by choice. Okay. But, yeah. And, and then I think, too, you hear people talk about 15 minutes, sit down and write, you know, as long... 15, 20, I'm, I'm more of a big chunk of time, get out. I never could do that either. coffee, something I'm going to enjoy. Yeah. I need blocked off time. It's got to be blocked off and uninterrupted. That was the only way I could get stuff done, yeah. I felt like. Well, let me do one more question before we wrap up. You've published a fair amount with EIU graduate students. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that process. Um, how do you select a graduate student? And I don't know, what's your overall thoughts regarding the co-authorship with EIU graduate students? So I, that is one of the things that I've very much enjoyed with being a faculty member at EIU. I love that I'm in contact with undergraduate students. We've had, since I've been here in 2010, a a nice handful of undergraduate students that have worked with me that have continued on into our graduate program. Um, so that has been, you know, really nice. I think it's really great experience as an undergrad. It solidifies like, yeah, I do want to go out and measure what teachers are doing and measuring student behavior as an undergrad. 
And so I don't know, I think I'm pretty clear with students that this is my research program and, and I'm looking to expand and I try and talk a lot with students about it. I try and get them excited about it. I, Right now we have graduate students that I'm pushing towards presenting poster ideas at the state conference that's coming up in January in an attempt to kind of jumpstart ideas on thesis and so that thesis is less intimidating because, you know, if you just start writing a proposal that's two pages, you know, that's two pages that's already written or you've thought about for your thesis. And so I enjoy doing that and taking time out to, you know, edit those proposals and talk through ideas with students. And Well, it's such a high-impact practice, and it's something that students remember, remember very well. They learn in a way that they otherwise don't have an opportunity to do, and it's so great you're doing this kind of research, and it helps your program. It helps those students, so it's really wonderful to see. Thank you. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I hope that, you know, I, I think that they enjoy it. I think matching up undergrad and graduate students is also very helpful. Somebody gets experience, somebody gets help, you know, collecting data. And so, yeah, I think it's it's been really great. I enjoy that. That's a, a big part of my job that I look forward to. All right, Meg, final question. Let's give a little plug for your school psychology program. It's already fantastic, but let's. Uh, what what's going on there that makes it so good, and um, why are students continuing to do so well in your program? Yeah, we have an excellent program. We have a three-year program where our students obtain their master's degree on their way to getting their specialist degree after their uh, third year out on internships. So they're two years on campus, and then um, their third year they're out on internships. Some students go kind of back home for that internship year, but it kind of just depends on their personal situation and what they want to do. We are an accredited program, and so we're really proud of that. When our students come, they hear all about our uh, the National Association of School Psychology standards, and we've embedded that through our, our program. That also means that when our students graduate from, graduate from our program, um, they've already taken the national certification test. And so all they have to do is complete a couple uh, pieces of paper and send that over to the uh, National Association and be accredited as a nationally certified school psychologist, which I think is really great too. Um, but yeah, we have supportive faculty that you know, are doing like research and are passionate about working with kids and are passionate about this field and best practice and continually supporting teachers and supporting families and, and seeing kids uh, excel in school. Well, great. Well, Meg, it's been a pleasure hearing about your research. Thank you. Thanks for all the good work you're doing and thanks for being a guest here on EIU Innovate. You are certainly one of those faculty members who are innovative and what's so great is that you're engaging graduate students and undergraduates in your research and making just a powerful difference in their experience. So thank you for all you're doing. Yeah, thank you for having me.